Well, Fed speakers are still talking up rate hikes, more of the whatever-it-takes sentiment on Friday, uh, which was the day that the EU met to try and figure out what to do about the energy crisis and agreeing that something needs to be done, but lots to be sorted out there whilst the temperatures start to fall. And the Bank of England, well, they were going to meet this week, but not now. And Ukraine making ground against the Russians. Imagine if that war finished. I know it's a vain hope. I'm always the optimist. It's Monday, the 12th of September, 2022. It's the morning call from NAB. Good morning. Well, U.S. stocks were up at the end of the week. The Nasdaq gained 2.1% on Friday, the third day of gains, pushing it up 4% on what was a short week for them last week. Friday also saw the S&P 500 up 1.5%, comfortably over 4,000 now. The Dow was up 1.2%, and we had big rises in European stocks too. The Eurostox 50 up 1.6%, the DAX up 1.4%, even the FTSE 100 managed a 1.2% lift. All of that, even though central banks are pushing rates up. We had uh, small moves on bonds at the end of the week, uh, 10-year Treasury yields fell just one basis point on Friday, but still high at just over 3.3%, but levelling off after the big rises that we saw in August. But there were moves in yields at the front end. So two years moved up 16 basis points last week, for example. Uh, UK 10-year yields fell five basis points, down to 3.09%. German 10-year bun yields also down a couple of basis points. Aussie 10 years finished the week at 3.55%, but only small moves on Friday. Uh, quite a fall in the US dollar, though. It fell 06 6% on Friday on the DXY and almost uh, down 1% against the Swiss franc and 1.1% down on the Japanese yen makes a change. The big winner on the back of all of that was the Aussie dollar up one point, over 1.3% on the day, up to 68.4 US cents. The pound gained 0.7%, the euro almost half a percent up. And oil back on the rise on both Thursday and Friday. But even so, it just gets back to where it was on Wednesday. So, so no big changes. Uh, but uh, WTI was up 3.9%. Uh, uh, Brent was up over 4.1% to 92.84 a barrel. So uh, this all seems a bit strange. Uh, the Fed and other central banks, there they are, talking rates up. Inflation doesn't seem to be under control in most countries. But shares are doing well. And the US dollar is falling. Uh, which all sounds like risk-on sentiment, really, doesn't it? But is, uh, really? Uh, here's NAB's Rodrigo Cotrill. Uh, so Bloomberg is saying, Rodrigo, that a chunk of that rally in shares is actually short sellers having to cover themselves. Do you think there's some uh, some truth in that? Um, morning, Phil. Yeah, so looking at the data, it was interesting that the um, companies that have been underperforming and are known to be severely short by the market were the ones that have performed on Friday. So I suppose that that Bloomberg theory mm. uh, is being supported by some evidence. Um, there also, there, there's been quite a lot of discussion around technical indicators. For instance, you mentioned the S&P 500 heading back above that 4,000 mark. It's also moved above the 100-day moving average. So again, it, it does kind of play to this idea that maybe there was some short covering um, helping or boosting the, the performance of the U.S. equity market. Um, and we also had the likes of Citigroup, um, as well as the Bank of America, highlighting how their um, bear to oversold indicators um, were also kind of, there were so extreme levels uh, that they were sig- they, they signaling the, um, the contrarian buy signal, if you like. Um, so overall, no. Uh, to your point, there, had, there was no equity data and there, there was no sort of company-specific news driving the move. So it seems technical. Right. Play- so volatility in short, isn't it? I mean, we're, it's not a trend, is it? Well, that's that's where we struggle. So, I mean, it, 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 we're sort of living in unusual times and the, it seems that the equity market is pricing in 
a recovery of the most anticipated recession that we've had probably ever. Um, and, and yet, yeah. uh, what, what to us, what keeps us a bit cautious is that history tells us that, um, you know, when you have activity indicators, for instance, like the PMI heading south, um, it, it tends to be a difficult environment for the equity market. And, and we, we only just starting to see the beginning of, of that downturn, particularly when you think about the European readings, and particularly when you think about the fact that we're still heading towards that sort of winter of discontent with no energy. Um, it seems to us there's still a little bit more bad economic news to come uh, before we can sort of call the bottom and have a real uh, or a more clear degree of certainty of how bad this downturn is going to be. So, um, so yeah. So, so the equity market to us, it seems it's, it's going to remain volatile for, for quite some time. For a while, yeah, yeah. And uh, the Fed, meanwhile, uh, still saying, you know, we're going to do whatever it takes to own Powell, saying just that again on Friday, how they're committed to fight inflation, that they won't stop till the work is done. Uh, he reckons they can do it, though, without the misery of uh, that Volcker inflicted on everyone in the United States, because uh, Volcker, he said, was fighting years of rising inflation expectations. It's, you know, they've they've called it early, as far as, as he's concerned. This was a a Cato Institute webcast that he was doing on on, on Friday. Uh, so, and, and another interesting thing he said on, on the the whole thing about not giving in early. He said history cautions against prematurely loosening policy. So, I mean, he didn't say anything new, but the fact that they just keep on saying it, maybe, you know, if you say it enough, everyone's everyone's going to cotton on. <laughs> well, yeah, if you say it enough, and I think that, uh, if anything, that's kind of evident in the price section of uh, the U.S. Treasury market. We've seen, uh, as you mentioned, that flattening of the curve, which has been led by the front end. Uh, mm-hmm. So the market, at least uh, investors in the bond market, are, are pricing in this idea that the Fed not only will remain quite aggressive near term, but also it's likely to retain or keep that sort of tight policy for quite some time. So there's been that sort of repricing that is occurring in the front end of, of now a, a, a more likely Fed to be, you know, on restricted mode for, for an extended period of time. So yeah. in addition to Powell, we also had, you know, Fed Bullard again advocating for that 75 basis point hike in mm. September. If he even uh, said Waller, actually he wouldn't be necessarily be swayed by the CPI numbers because we get the uh, US inflation numbers this week. He says, you know, he's not going to let one data point dictate what they're doing. Yeah, that's right. And, and again, place to that sort of message coming from Fed Chair Powell that, they want to be certain uh, that uh, inflation has been, if you like, tamed, um, whilst at the same time, uh, again, that historical precedent that is that you need to make sure that it is well contained before you, you, you start easing again, uh, because the evidence of the, or the lessons from the 80s and 70s is that if you don't do that, it, it will just start rising again quite quickly. Um, and I suppose from a macro perspective, the way we think about it is that there's just not enough energy and there won't be enough energy potentially for the next 18 months, if not longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a scenario where there's, there's limited supply of energy, you can't allow economies to, you know, get back to growth above or even with it close to trend because that's just going to exacerbate those inflationary pressures coming from it. So we yeah, sort yeah. of need to grow below trend for a little while until supply catches up with us. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, particularly businesses that are energy uh, intensive. Uh, I mean, I don't you know they're going to feel the hurt, uh, but you don't want them chewing up the energy. But we also don't want them to go bankrupt. I mean, I, and this is the I mean, this is the problem that everyone's got all over the world. And this is why the EU meeting on Friday. I mean, they sort of agree in principle to you know some sort of cap on the price of gas, 
But, you know, how it's going to be applied, uh, whether it would be applied just to Russian gas or it would apply to all imports. Well, it's got to be, I mean, it's an international market, isn't it? And, and then the big question, how are they, you know, to, to your point, how are they going to decrease that demand? And, uh, you know, some countries are saying, well, it's not, it's, it's not got to be mandatory. Uh, you know, it's got to be voluntary. And if it's voluntary, then, you know, you're not going to do it. So uh, it, it seems like, I mean, you know, reading through the notes from that meeting on Friday, it seems like they're going to reach a conclusion about how they're going to make it through winter. Possibly they will have reached that conclusion by spring. You know, it's uh, it's taken a while. <laughs> or next winter. Yeah, um, or next, yeah, yeah. But so gas prices fell, so there was some hope. <laughs> they fell to a four-week low on Friday. There was some hope, but but again, here here's where we remain cautious because, again, I'm laboring the point. We know there's just not enough mm. energy. Um, and then uh, from a political perspective, politicians have been reluctant to called or mandates uh, it is decreasing in in demand in a sense to try to re- reduce that that pressure um so they, there was also talk about that that they they need to sort of find ways of convincing people that it's a good idea not to spend so much energy during winter because just not going to be enough of it um and the other issue of the price cap which is how do you actually make it work um not only because there are a lot of uh, within europe there are many that are highly dependent on on how some of these gas supplies so they're saying, well, if we do this, where, where else are we going to get this from? Um, whilst at the same time, as you mentioned, it, it's a global market. And, and what is proving to be the case is that um, Europe and, and the UK in particular are paying high prices and, and Asia is paying high prices, while you know others like China and, and India are benefiting from you know the opportunity to get lower prices directly from Russia. Yeah. So um, it needs to be a more concerted effort. Otherwise, any, any policy that they introduce may not prove to be as effective. Christine Lagarde was talking on Friday as well, saying, you know, it's not the job of the ECB to uh, to bail out energy firms. It really is the job of the EU. I mean, they're there to provide liquidity to banks and uh, and that's it. While we're talking about central banks, the Bank of England was supposed to meet this week, but they're not now. They've uh, they've pushed back a week. So uh, not till September the 21st, uh, obviously because of the uh, the, the death of the, the Queen and this, this period of mourning. So that means next week's going to be interesting. September the 21st, first for the Bank of England. September the 22nd uh, is the day uh, for the Fed. Um, and then we've also got the UK on public holiday on Monday and Australia on public holiday on Thursday. It's going to be a very confusing week next week, but also a very busy week. So, so yes, and, and it will set the stage for the following week, as you say, which will be super interesting, which also includes the Bank of Japan as well. And we'll talk about a little mm. bit about that. But the uh, overall, this delay by the Bank of England actually makes it quite interesting because it, it will allow the Bank of England to have more information, not only in terms of uh, GDP and uh, inflation readings, which are still expected to continue to rise in, in, in the UK, but also potentially more information coming from the UK government in terms of what these programs look like, how they're going to be funded, um, and, and to what degree uh, the fiscal side is going to be on, on the footing in terms of how much they're going to have to pay yeah. for all of this. Uh, and I think that that would yeah. be super important for you know the Bank of England trying to assess what all these policies mean, which near term, they do alleviate some of those inflationary pressures in the UK, but they, they do actually potentially mean high inflation over the medium term as well. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a fine balancing act that they will have to play. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned Japan there. They are clearly getting restless about the uh, the movement in the yen. It's, it's hit, hit lowest since 1998 last week. Uh, but, you know, how, how, so what can they do? I mean, we, we asked that question last week. Other than the shift in approach by the Bank of Japan, which won't happen, uh, I mean, what, what else can they do? I mean, it's the, the balance of trade deficit is their big problem, isn't it? 
Well, yeah, I suppose that's one of the problems. And the other one is this sort of um, um, hard-headed, if you like, view from the Bank of Japan that they, they have to retain this ultra-easy policy until they see evidence of, of, a, of, a, of the right kind of inflation, which needs to be led by an increase in wages uh, and, and a domestic-driven, if you like, uh, demand uh, that, will, that will push up those, those prices. Um, at the moment, we see not, not a strong evidence of that. The, the inflation that Japan is suffering at the moment is very much driven by the supply side and this energy dependency that the country has. Um, but here's where the, the political debate is becoming louder and louder that, you know, this weakness of the yen typically is being referred to as being beneficial for Japan. Uh, but clearly that, that is, you know, not the case at the moment where the, the cost of living is becoming unbearable whilst, you know, small companies are also suffering from, uh, you know, this high in, increase in inflation. Uh, whilst corporate Japan, which has, you know, exports, uh, are benefiting from a weaker currency. So um, it, the pressure is on for, for, for Japan officials to do something about it. But at the moment, we know that any intervention which is unilateral, uh, history tells you that it is going to be ineffective. Um, and that leaves, in our view, uh, uh, you know, the, the pressure on the Bank of Japan, which is the only one that can alleviate this by uh, tweaking their policy. Um, at the moment, it seems that the pressure is not enough for them to, to switch, but further, further weakness from here will certainly uh, make the case even louder. Give it a month or two, perhaps, yeah. So uh, let's look at what's happening in Canada. So front-loading might be working there if, uh, you know, people losing their jobs is a sign of it working because unemployment rose half a percent to 5.4%, almost 40,000 fewer jobs. Interestingly, though, average hourly wages have ticked up a little, so that's not good. But maybe that'll slow down. Maybe as the, as we see more people losing jobs, maybe th- those wages will come down. It's just a timing effect. Yes, but uh, t- to us, the, the Bank of Canada, as well as the Bank of New Zealand, uh, are this canary in the coal mines. And a, a reminder that, yeah. you know, banks will continue to, to tighten. And, and indeed, the Bank of Japan, uh, the Bank of Canada is still expected to tighten a little bit more this, this year. Um, against this backdrop of uh, these inflationary pressures, particularly coming from the labor market. So, um, you know, the, part of the solution is slower growth and, and a rise of unemployment. And, and that's what we've seen in Canada. And that's not necessarily going to deter the Bank of Canada from hiking uh, until we see those a decline in those wage pressures, which, as you mentioned, they're not quite there yet. But certainly there's a signal that maybe a turning point has been yeah. reached. Now, China, we'll have to go quickly because we're running out of time now, but one uh, loans a bit below expectations in August. Of course, they had COVID lockdowns as well. Uh, but w- w- how are they going to cope with that? I mean, if if, uh, if if we've got demand for loans slowing, that means less investment. I, I mean, how do they inject more cash into the market? Do they lower rates? I mean, they could do because they we had the inflation numbers out. Uh, softer than expected on Friday. Yeah, I mean, this is a typical economic case of pushing on a string, <laughs> as, as, as is said in, in the in the books. The, you know, the, the the issue is that there's no demand yeah. for for uh, for borrowing. Uh, so even if you lower the cash rates to zero or Makes negative, no it's not going to change yeah. the picture. So COVID policy is a big big one, and, and of course, confidence in in the property market is yeah. the other one. And at the moment, um, we don't see an imminent turn in in those factors. Um, So a little bit of slower growth should be expected. Right, okay. And on the war uh, front, 200 days into that war, and uh, Ukraine is winning back some territory from the Russians. That's been the big news over the weekend. They say they've claimed more than 3,000 square kilometres this month. Russia has admitted that they are pulling their forces from some areas to focus on the Donetsk region. 
Uh, of course, there's the worry that if Russia looks like it's losing, that they might do something stupid. But on the other side, you know, maybe uh, if they're if they're forced into some sort of deal, that would change the, the whole shape of everything we've talked about in the last 10 or 15 minutes, wouldn't it? Look, today, this week, uh, we, we haven't got time to talk about it now, but we will later on in the week. There's some big numbers, the US CPI, and we sort of talked about it in relation to the Fed. Uh, also, retail sales for the US. We get Australian employment uh, numbers on Thursday and uh, New Zealand's GDP as well. All of that we'll talk about later in the week. Today, we get UK's monthly GDP numbers. I'm assuming they're going to be fairly grim reading. Uh, but, you know, actually, interestingly, the UK has been known to surprise a bit lately as well, hasn't it? Yeah, the, the, there's expectations for the monthly number to actually be a positive relative to, to the negative no. one that we had the previous month. Uh, but certainly still murky waters and, and challenging environment yeah, ahead. Absolutely. All right. Very good. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. Good to talk. Uh, catch you soon, Rodrigo. Thank you. Cheers, Phil. Thanks. And uh, welcome back to our Apple listeners, because we had a bit of a problem last week. Uh, Circumstances completely beyond our control where we weren't publishing on Apple Podcasts. But we are back now. At least you had a taste of what life is like without us. So I'm sure you appreciate the morning call even more. Now we are back uh, and we're back here every morning. I'm Phil Dobby for now. Back tomorrow morning, for example. I'll see you then. Have a great day.